So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, uh, boy, uh, here it is, still in lockdown or semi-lockdown, and t- and today with thematic complications. David, yes, <laughs> we we are living in some kind of um, I don't know. I, I told somebody if it starts raining locusts or you know <laughs> any of this kind of stuff, I'm just going to dig a hole. We had a storm from hell. Uh, last night, and we have 130,000 Nashvillians without power today. And I am sitting here running internet from my hotspot on my phone because there is no such thing as internet uh, in my building. Oh wow! Yeah, it it sailed through here last night. Uh, a lot of trees down in Franklin. My daughter, who lives a, a an hour south and west of here, uh, heard what sounded like a train. Mm. coming toward her and she grabbed her three young kids and got them in the closet under the stairs uh if it was a tornado and i think it may have been a tornado it didn't touch down but it did take the top of her brick chimney carry it away oh yeah yeah so uh yeah yeah and 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 so can now can you imagine trying to sell the idea of sheltering at home with no power (laughs) <laughs> I know. And I, I ran into somebody just a little while ago, our good friend, Sam Lavender, who you know well. I do know Sam. Uh, ran into him down at the Frothy Monkey on my stroll through town. He was there with his dad. He, he lives in Antioch and said he's been told by uh, Channel 7, the news, his news source, that uh, it could be five days more before they get power restored. Oh, sounds odd yeah. to me. Well, yeah. the, it's it's an unprecedented amount. It's a record number of people without electricity, and you know the the sadness just keeps coming. But you know, twenty twenty is the gift that keeps giving here. But um, it it people had had stocked freezers, you know, anticipating yeah. that this stay at home was going to go on and on, you know, and so they've stocked freezers and of course the meat scare, you know, is there going to be meat or not? So some people had stocked up on some meat and there's no electricity. So is the thing just going to sit there and go bad and when will they get power? And uh, someone told me they were looking for a generator today and went all the way. I mean, uh, calling and, and texting, emailing, uh, within a 60 mile radius of Nashville and could not find one to rent or buy. So we are, you know, living in the, uh, as they would say in my growing up church in the last days here in 
nationals. Yeah, it's just not fun here to this this uh, little this little window of time. So we're in the middle of the tribulation, my brother. I, I, (laughs) you know, I'm telling you, it's it's just just nuts. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, I am grateful amid all of this to be sober. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? Oh, man, <laughs> am I grateful to be sober. Uh, because I know that I would be medicating like crazy this discomfort and only making matters worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, you know, how many times have you heard the saying in the rooms that my best day, worst day sober is better than my best day using? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that is the thing. Right now, I'm just having to remind my clients the and thank God, literally, that um, people are still calling and coming because I, I don't see them in person. I FaceTime and Zoom, everybody, but 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 everything that we have to press into other people's uh, awareness, we have to remind ourselves of as well. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. this is not forever. This is a, a finite period of time, albeit we don't have a you know a window down the road on it. But but you know, we still have ways of not isolating. We still have ways of managing our anxiety and telling ourselves the truth. And that, um, we, this, this could only be worse if we were active in our, in our old behaviors. Yeah. 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 Well, here in Tennessee, I know this is not the experience of every one of our listeners. We uh, certainly have lots of people tuning into this podcast who are, uh, still under strict lockdown orders and it's unclear when they're going to be released from their homes. Boy, do I have great sympathy for folks uh, locked away in tiny apartments alone or with small children. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here in Tennessee, at least in Middle Tennessee, in Franklin, Tennessee, I don't know uh, if the same is true in Davidson, but we now have restaurants open uh, for, uh, you know, for limited service. Mm -hmm. There are some folks on the sidewalks. Uh, Things are starting to open up tentatively here. And yeah, and it and I've got to tell you, I posted this on Facebook yesterday. I find myself with mixed feelings mm-hmm. at the prospect of going back to life as it used to be. Yeah, I saw that. I thought that was really. I thought that was really good. Yeah, yeah, because there's something, and there's something about this slower pace of of life mm-hmm. that isn't terrible. Well, exactly. You know, and I'm I'm thinking about writing a blog to uh, post about what is the COVID uh, dynamic teaching us. And yeah, yeah. one of the things is I, I don't want to go back to just filling up my time. Right. You know, um, I don't want to do that because I have had some of the best conversations and visits and time just um, having, having no where to be because there is nowhere to be. I mean, that's, you know, good and bad, but, um, but yeah, I mean, people that I've been associating with are unhurried. Yes. Allie and I had this conversation a few days ago um, about weekends 
we used there used to be the stock question that we would ask uh, and people would ask us, what are you going to do this weekend? Mm-hmm. And implicit in the question is, of course, you're going to be doing something this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just kind of, uh, you know, accepted general practice. You fill up your weekend with activity. That's what the weekend is for. Mm-hmm. And um, now not to have that presupposition anymore. Now the presupposition is, well, <laughs> I mean, we're, a weekend, uh, we're, we're going to be home. It's not that we won't be doing something, but we don't have to, you know, get up and go and cram the weekend full of activity right. or, you know, or distraction or, you know, this kind of determined recreation. Yeah. Do you know that I have played Jenga for two hours straight? <laughs> because yeah. because I can. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. And it was fun. And and people, you know, there were only two people. But what do you do? You know, it was great. You know, Allie had the idea uh, a week or so ago that hey, maybe a jigsaw puzzle would be a good idea. And so <laughs> I went. I, I so I went to Target to buy a jigsaw puzzle and wound up purchasing the only one left. Apparently, we're not the only ones <laughs> who I, had the idea that maybe yeah. that old, you know, that long forgotten, uh, you know, time passer of having that seven hundred and fifty piece or thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. It's going to take a week to put together. You know, I uh, monopolizing the dining room table. So anyway, yeah, yeah, it's just. You know, yeah, it, it, there's some, there's some obvious serious ramifications to all this and we're not minimizing that at all. But as far as our time and teaching us what we're, um, how we have invested ourselves, maybe this is a really good pause. Yeah. 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 Well, um, we have a guest coming up, David, who Mm -hmm. is going to kind of take us, uh, a little deeper in the conversation than than many of us customarily go mm-hmm. when at least when we start thinking and working our recovery mm-hmm. we 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 tend to think about behaviors about doing and we've got a guest who is going to deepen the conversation to get us thinking and talking about more about being yes where are we coming from right all right Listeners, you're not going to want to miss this conversation. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. David, once again, your uh, contacts have brought into, uh, into, uh, into orbit Another fascinating personality and somebody with uh, some fresh concepts to add to the conversation. You want to uh, introduce our guest? I would. Um, yeah. And thank you, Nate, because um, I'm still trying to remember exactly how I came across T.J. Woodward. But I do remember that I was fascinated by the new, um, more spiritually oriented approach to recovery that he takes and just um, a lot of work about trauma and shame and all of that. T.J. Woodward is coming to us from the West Coast, 
And TJ is a speaker. He's a um, he's a recovery specialist. He's a best-selling author. Um, he's a, a treatment consultant. And uh, TJ has something. Uh, he's written two books, uh, but his um, his concept is called conscious recovery. And I'm really excited about um, what the conscious recovery method is, and what and and to get him to talk about that. So TJ, without me rambling uh, through who you are, I want people to hear you talk about that. So welcome to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for first of all creating this show. There is a new wave of uh, awareness around recovery, looking at it in a much more positive light. So, of course, I really love the name of your podcast, and I'm very, very excited, as always, to have a conversation about how we can start to change some of the accepted narrative and the way we viewed recovery now for um, nearly a century. And so there's a yeah. there's this new wave, this new paradigm that's happening. So I'm really grateful to be here to share my my own journey and my own version of that uh, new paradigm. Yeah. Well, tell us, TJ, how long have you been, as they say in the biz, hanging around the rooms? How long have you been in recovery? Where did your experience start? Give us a little of the backstory, if you will. Well, picture it, Dallas, Texas, 1986. So no, I got sober. <laughs> I did get sober in 1986. So I'm coming up on 34 years, if I'm doing the math correctly. And, uh, you know, I want to actually go back because I, the way conscious recovery was born really was out of my own experience. And I remember being a, a young child and being absolutely filled with joy filled with connection mm. and love and just open, wide open. And I remember through a series of events that I would now call traumatic events, obviously my four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old didn't have that language. But essentially, I came into a world that taught me about competition and taught me about what it meant to be a boy or a girl. And I saw racism and I saw violence on TV. And I shut down and built a wall. And mm. drugs and alcohol really brought relief from that. So by the time I, I got sober, just before I turned 21, really began my journey of uh, moving back toward my own wholeness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. And uh, when did kind of the, uh, when and how did this, you know, when did you begin to, to question the accept, accepted narr narrative? And start to wonder whether there was maybe a different way to look at it from the way most people were understanding and explaining recovery. Well, I was really, really fortunate to meet a woman named Mary Helen Brownell, <clears throat> who changed my life in early recovery, actually. I met her probably around the time I had one year sober, and I was pretty deeply entrenched in a paradigm that was teaching me that I was broken, that I was damaged, that I had character defects, that my own best thinking got me here and I need to sit down and shut up and listen. And all of that has its place. But when I was about a year sober, I was longing for something different than that. And I was feeling probably more shame and more disconnection than ever. And I wasn't dealing with the underlying issues. I met a woman named Mary Helen Brownell who changed all of that for me. She had traveled to India multiple times. She had been on a, a deep spiritual quest, and she was the first person 
that introduced me to this idea that is simple yet profound. And that is, what if you're whole and perfect? And what if recovery is about returning to that wholeness rather than trying to seek something or some somewhere, some destination, right? And in American culture, we have a destination addiction. If I can just get over there. Yeah. And yeah. so she started teaching me about recovery as an unlearning process. Wow. Oh, boy, isn't that something? An unlearning process. Well, and so, so TJ, you're unlearning um, that has to, <laughs> that pushes up against all the paradigms or many of the paradigms that, uh, are widely recognized as, as the definitive way to get sober, so to speak. How did you, uh, how did you, how did you make that shift? Well, I think my rebellious nature has helped me all along <laughs> because I kind of question the status quo because, you know, if I go back to my seven-year-old self that built that wall around my heart, that became afraid of the world, that realized that uh, I wasn't, my effervescent self wasn't going to be celebrated in every circle. And so I did build these walls. I did get disconnect. I had all this trauma that was unresolved, but mostly what I remember in early sobriety was experiencing a lot of shame. I felt broken. I felt damaged. I felt like I wasn't good enough. And then I remember the energy of people saying, yeah, that's right. You have these defects of character that you need to surrender. And although I understood what that meant and its place, I was becoming really curious about Mary Helen's approach, which was we are whole and perfect. And we came into a world that didn't celebrate it. And in my case, I built a wall, I built armor, and that armor actually protected me uh, it also protected me from the love and connection that I was seeking. And so drugs and alcohol were the relief. G- then I got sober and took away the, not the problem. A lot of us tend to think addiction is a problem. I took away the solution. So I had all this shame and all this disconnection and I felt so unworthy. If I'm really honest, I felt unlovable and unworthy. And so the unlearning process was about discovering those places within myself where I had closed off and shut down, the events of my life where I had built the wall. And so the unlearning process that started, uh, I guess, in 1987, when I was a year sober, was beginning to question all of that and dismantle that so that I could return back to this place of wholeness. Totally different paradigm. And I just loved her so much. She would look at me in her beautiful Southern accent and say, darling, you are so precious. And I would recoil because I could not mm-hmm. take that in. But mm-hmm. at one point, I thought, wow, I love and respect her. She seems so enlightened. If she sees me as precious, I wonder if she might be right. I wonder if there is preciousness. And so that really began the, um, the unlearning and discovering the tr- our true, my true nature. That was the beginning of the process. Wow. Right. But you had to have the anesthesia removed to begin to experience all that raw emotion that felt three inches from your face, I must guess, uh, to come to those conclusions, right? So. Yeah. I mean, I, I first had to take away the drugs and alcohol. Uh, and of course, 
you know, I had this euphoric experience in the beginning because it was just nice to wake up without the hangover. It was nice to, uh, you know, it was back in the day, you know, writing checks on Friday with no money in the account so I could buy drugs and not eating or sleeping for three days. And having all of that removed was this beautiful relief and it lasted for several months. But then all the underlying issues started creeping back up. You know, uh, I did recognize at that point, oh my gosh, drugs and alcohol weren't the problem. I was medicating something. And then I started being curious about what that was like. And of course, I'd love to tell you, I met Mary Helen. I unlearned everything in in 30 days. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a a pretty long process for me, this this idea of unlearning and returning. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, I, I imagine, TJ, that by now, you know, not only uh, do you have your own story to refer to and the insights uh, that you've gained along the way, but you have had the privilege of observing and accompanying quite a few other men and women along this path. Is Are there kind of uh, characteristic stages that you have seen, uh, signposts that need to be recognized, obstacles, typical obstacles, or misconceptions that need to be met and overcome? Yeah. So I, I started working in the addiction treatment field in 2008, so about 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I quickly realized that within the treatment industry, there was still a strong focus only on symptoms and behaviors, right? They were looking at behaviors. They were looking at changing thought patterns, you know, DBT, CBT, they were all really great, but I became curious about what was underneath. And so the signpost, if you will, what I discovered, because when I started in the field, I had already gone back to school. My education was in spirituality. I had already really done so much of my own discovery that I, you know, I was 20 years sober when I started working in the field. So I started my work with two curiosities. One, how do we create a space to actually get down to the deeper root causes? And two, what happens when I view everyone I'm sitting with through the lens of wholeness? And so what I discovered, I appreciate your question. And there's just a common, a commonly accepted paradigm in the treatment world where we don't treat trauma. We're here to stabilize someone. We're here to help them get sober. And then the long-term work is after they leave treatment. But I quickly realized that there were people in treatment for the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time. You know, I remember meeting a young woman that was 23 that was in treatment for the fifth time. And I started becoming really curious about that. So the the signpost is anyone at any moment that is ready to try on a different approach, it, anyone can be ready for that. Because I also think there's kind of an unconscious um, bias that people aren't ready to address these underlying issues. But to me, it's actually malpractice if we're not helping our clients get down to the root causes, especially clients that are there for multiple times. So I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but that's what came up for me when you asked it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we know that, um, the, if you go once, you probably go three times. I think statistically, is that about right, uh, to treatment? 
Yeah, I think so. And there's also, you know, again, I, I like to be as controversial as possible in, in what I say. Uh, you know, there's a common, commonly accepted success rate of 10 to 15%. And there are treatment programs, you know, I think of the Meadows that's, you know, based, you know, just based in doing deeper trauma work. They're having higher success rates, but there are yeah. even the programs that are doing some of the deeper work you know, when we get to 20 and 25% success rate, we call that a victory. And of course it is. And there's more that we can be doing. So conscious recovery isn't the answer. It is something that can assist in whatever modality or treatment or therapy is already happening. So I think more and more of us are offering these different possibilities to truly help our clients heal from addiction rather than just be treated in their addiction. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So how do you describe conscious recovery? Well, I think conscious recovery is twofold. I'll start with the foundational principle of conscious recovery is simple. Underneath all addictive behavior is an essential self that is whole and perfect. That in itself is a completely different paradigm because most clinicians are trained to diagnose and treat. And although I understand the relevance and the efficacy of that to a certain extent, what I have actually seen time after time as I've sat in clinical meetings is I've heard clients referred to as their diagnosis. She is so borderline. Now that creates um, a viewpoint where we're looking at our clients as broken. Life is energy. And our clients are very attuned to it. So when we're in the room, hearing them, but diagnosing, looking for what's broken, the quantum field, quantum mechanics is now showing us that the observer has a profound effect. So that's the first principle of conscious recovery. And then the second one is, we can talk about more maybe as the interview goes on, but it's about how to get down to the deeper, actually get down to the deeper root causes instead of only focusing on symptoms. So so would you say then from your perspective that when I say I'm Nate and I am a recovering sex addict or I'm uh, an alcoholic, that those words in themselves are in a way undermining my, uh, reducing my chances for recovery? So I'm going to share only out of my own experience because that's, you know, that's a sacred, uh, that's a sacred cow you're talking about right now. (laughs) I do understand why that's important for people, but in my Mm -hmm. experience, that didn't serve me at five, six, seven, eight, nine years sober. I think a big turning point for me was when I heard a speaker one time say, I'm 25 years sober. I'm just a effed up alcoholic. So I don't know how to live life. I don't know how to have relationships. Now I had been in new thought long enough to know if I am telling myself, I don't know how to do relationships, that's going to be the reality. That is going to be the truth because I'm going into every situation with a core false belief and that core false belief ultimately creates reality. So I myself would never use those terms about myself again. I understand that for some people that's really important, but I also know the power of the I am and words are important. So I I personally do not choose to use that those terms. 
I, I remember it was it was it was very very um, powerful to me when I was early in recovery to listen to the way one of the guys in the meeting always checked in. In contrast to everybody else, he would say his name, and then he would say, "I am a good and worthwhile person, worthy of recovery and recovering today from my addiction." Yes, beautiful. And we're yeah, entirely different from what everybody else in the room was saying. But I also respected, saw, admired, and really coveted the quality of his recovery. Mm. Yeah, because there's a point at which we have uh, let go of the addiction. And I do recognize the importance of one day at a time. And I also recognize the importance of now that this addiction is not something that's active in my daily life, how do I shift from only focusing on not using again and focus on how I thrive. How how do I have a life filled with all wonder and connection? For me, it's like, how do I return to that pure experience that I had when I was a young child? Uh, I recognize that, you know, we do have the mind now that's much more developed. But when I begin to question all of my thoughts and my beliefs, I can return to that essential knowing. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life focused on not drinking or using. I want to focus my life on how I thrive, how I connect, how I create relationships that are loving, how I can be a beneficial presence on the planet. And for me, it's really restrictive to focus only on something that I've let go of quite some time ago. Now, I'm not saying that that might not be important for someone in the beginning of their recovery. It was for me, but it really didn't serve me after the first year or so of recovery. Mm, Yeah. And TJ, would you say that there is a point? Well, let me ask you this way. What is the place, do you think, that people are ready to really embrace the unlearning as you're, as you're calling it and step into this different way of thinking about themselves, being willing to admit, you know, because there's a part of me that, that would, when, when I was active in my addiction, let's say, um, I, I, I could not have received that I was worthy and perfect and whole and, um, anything but a disaster. (laughs) And so where, where do you find the readiness in the, in the, in the client, the person that is coming to you, um, wanting help? Well, I think what you just shared is so honest and so raw. And that's exactly how I felt, right? I felt like I was my behavior and my behavior wasn't looking so great. You know, I was stealing, I was staying up all night, I was calling in sick to work, I was barely paying my rent, you know, the story goes on and on. But there's a separation from my essential self and my behavior. So sometimes when people hear me say, we approach addiction looking for the wholeness and perfection, some people have said to me, wow, it sounds like you're really um, not focusing on the what people have done that are that's wrong. Now, I'm not a I'm not a fan of the paradigm good bad right wrong, but what I do know is when I believed I was broken, I acted broken. When I believed in my own sense of unworthiness, I acted unworthy in the world. So, you know, simply said, hurt people hurt people. So for me, I think it can happen on day 1. You know, what if 
what if you are whole and perfect? And when I approach clients with that, sometimes there is pushback. Oh, I am not whole and perfect. I just really hurt my girlfriend. I just did this. You know, they have all that story. So we're not saying we don't need to be accountable for our behavior. What I'm saying is, what does it create when I'm viewing myself as broken? And what does it create when I'm open to the possibility that underneath all of that, there is still this whole imperfect person? And the behavior actually came from a separation from that. So I identify spiritual disconnection as one of the root causes of addiction. What I'm talking about is a connection with that essential self. When I'm disconnected from that truth, I have all sorts of absurd behaviors because I'm looking to the world to try to bring that sense of wholeness. But as we know, it doesn't really work because no person, place, or thing can really bring me back to that deeper reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And TJ, when did you know you were, I hate to say it this way, but I live in Nashville and, and everything's a commodity here. So I'll just throw it out there. <laughs> but <laughs> when did you know you were onto something um, that was an approach that needed to be written about, taken to the next level, put out there for people to uh, embrace, and that it could be accessible by other practitioners and clinicians and uh, people working in the recovery world uh, so that so that you had something um, very unique to 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 add to this because I don't hear you I don't hear you calling this an alternative um, necessarily. I hear you saying that this is a a very important uh, addition component to in, incorporate into your reality of your recovery. When did you know that maybe this was like the third leg to the stool that <laughs> might be missing or something? Well, uh, thank you for asking it that way. I think it was both a process and also this series of events that led me to believe, not just believe, but to really experience how profound this can be. I already knew that it was profound in my life. I already recognized that the incredible um, presence that is that was Mary Helen, she, she made her transition in 1998, but she had such a profound impact on me that I realized that as an experiment, let me see what happens with clients working in the field. And I witnessed time and time again, profound breakthroughs. Um, I won't give the whole story, but there was one young woman who was in treatment and she was really struggling and her therapist just could she, her therapist said, he came to me and said, I don't know what to do with her. I don't know what to say to her. I'm wondering if you can sit with her. And I remember walking to meet her and just being really clear, because this was really early in my work uh, in treatment, being really clear that regardless of what she said or what she um, demonstrated or what she presented with, I was going to hold her in the space of her own preciousness, her own wholeness. And I remember we sat for about an hour and she just had these profound breakthroughs. Uh, and I went back to her therapist and he said, wow, she really shifted. What did you say? What did you do? And I remember saying to him, I didn't do or say anything. It was how I was being with her. And it was at that moment that I realized, wow, this is big. Uh, I developed 
groups based on this. I developed what became curriculum. And then, you know, several years ago, I realized I really want to put this down uh, in a book, uh, created a workbook, created some online experiences. And now I go into treatment programs and train them on my method. And the method, yes, there's curriculum, but the fundamental method is how do I hold space and create an opportunity for someone to access their own inner wisdom rather than the old paradigm of me telling them what they need to do. Uh, So that's a long answer because it was a progression over time. But the, the short answer is profound results, watching people's eyes light up, watching people be able to access and work with some of their trauma, uh, work with some of their shame. And it was just so energizing for me. It was just pulling me to continue the work. Yeah. And do you find, TJ, that practitioners are receptive to you coming in and um, challenging maybe what some of the old uh, or uh, dated paradigms look like? Well, what I, what I do is I am, when I do my trainings, I invite the clinicians, the counselors, the therapists to simply try it, maybe go one session and just see how it goes. I remember I went into a treatment program a couple of years ago and, uh, At the end of, at the beginning of day two of the training, we were checking in and one of the counselors said, oh my gosh, I want to share something with you. Um, I left day one of the training and walked back up where the clients were. And there was a client sitting outside of group crying. And I, my instinct was to tell him, you need to get inside a group. You can't be out of group. And then he remembered what we had been with all day. And he said, I just sat down next to him and said nothing. And I just kept my heart open to him. And he looked at me and said, wow, thank you so much. And walked back into group. Mm -hmm. So he said, it was that experience that shifted him. So it wasn't about me saying, this is a new way. You must try it. It was like, hey, see if this works. Uh, Another clinician in that same training said, our clients are a lot smarter than I realized. So what I do is I just invite them to try it on and see how it works. And, uh, you know, some people probably go back to their normal way of doing it. But a lot of people try it on and start they start getting really remarkable results. So, uh, so far, it's been working really, really well. And people become more and more willing to try it as they see the dramatic results. Mm. Now, are, are there groups now, TJ, that... Uh, kind of practice intentionally conscious recovery as as kind of label themselves that way? So we um, mostly it's in treatment programs. So there are conscious recovery certified treatment programs. There's curriculum, residential and outpatient. There's a workbook and an online experience. But interestingly enough, during in the midst of COVID-19, uh, people have asked if we would start a conscious recovery meeting that is peer-led. So we are doing that now. It's a weekly meeting, and we are open to the idea and the, 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 the knowing that people will want to start their own conscious recovery meeting. So they actually recently launched. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Wow. Uh, any of our listeners who are intrigued 
by this conversation and want to explore it further, how would they connect with you or learn more about conscious recovery? Uh, you got a podcast. What, what's the best? What's what? What all can they do? Well, I think consciousrecovery.com is the best place to start because you can see on that website, there is a link to find meetings that are just starting. There is a link to our podcast. There uh, are links to the online resource, uh, which is Conscious Recovery for Individuals, where it's an interactive um, online experience where people really dive deeply into the conscious recovery experience. And then there's also clinical trainings on there as well. So that would be the best place, consciousrecovery.com. And you can see everything that we're offering and uh, more to come. I know that we're, we're in the process of growing right now. Wow. Wow. And you've got a couple of books, Conscious Being and uh, Conscious Recovery. Yeah. Conscious Being, Conscious Recovery. I just finished writing my third book, which is Conscious Creation. That's going to be coming out. I think we're going to probably launch that in the fall. Can Ooh. you can you give us a, 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 a little brief peek at what that uh, concept and uh, kind of the elevator speech for that book is? Yeah, conscious re- our conscious creation is actually very simple. It's based on an acronym that I created, which is MOVIE, um, how we shift from unconscious to conscious creation. And it's a five-step process, even though I promised myself I was never going to create that kind of process. I did. <laughs> never came up but uh, MOVIE is an acronym, and M is making peace with the past. And then O is overcoming core false beliefs. V is visioning, I is intention setting, and E is embodying the vision. So all of that is in process and will be coming out in the fall. Wow, fantastic. That's great. Well, I really love that the the field isn't static. We're all kind of on an adventure, on a journey together. I love uh, sharing insights and having stimulating conversations and allowing even our most uh, sacred convictions to be challenged. And, uh, I, I love any rebel. Sounds like you are a creative <laughs> rebel, TJ. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and, and just to be clear, you know, whatever works for people is what works for people, right? My, right. my, the reason I wanted to bring conscious recovery isn't to shift anyone, but to just offer another possibility, right? So, you know, right. if step works, if refuge recovery works, if CBT or DBT works, conscious recovery can enhance that. As a matter of fact, I would say probably the largest audience for conscious recovery is people that are doing traditional 12 step that are about two or three years sober. And they're saying, there's still more here that I want to dive into. There are still yeah. other possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, well TJ- this is... Th- this yeah, is go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say this is this is so good, and I hope our listeners do uh, take advantage of the opportunity to go to your website and to see what you have to offer, and and to dig deeper into your uh, message, into your spirituality, into uh, you. You do have a, a really great podcast. I've gotten to listen to a few episodes of that, and um, I just appreciate so much you making the time uh, to be here with us. Well, thank you guys. And, you know, I could be, I could spend all day having these conversations. So I just want to say thank you for creating the platform and being part of 
opening up to infinite possibilities as we shift the paradigm in how we view and work with and really ultimately heal addiction. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, listeners, we'll be back in a moment. Stay with us here on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Nate, I am really glad that TJ Woodward took the time and the West Coast time to uh, join us today because I, I was taken by his uh, writing when I first came upon his work and the spiritual depth of where he comes from as far as the why behind the what and getting someone to see themselves differently and therefore would begin to live out their reality differently. Um, as opposed to sometimes we get very caught up in, in our, in our labeling. And I know that's important initially that we identify ourselves. We have to say it. So it's true, but I really appreciated that he encourages us not to stay in that space necessarily. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I do know that identity is so, we act out of identity. That's why in the world of the Samson Society, we have this, uh, we have this thing that we read every week. And uh, there's this affirmation at the end of something that we call the fact that says, despite the lingering effects of sin, I am a restored son of the sovereign Lord whose spirit is at work in my weakness, displaying his glory and advancing his kingdom. This idea that, that I am uh, something valuable and lovable and beautiful mm-hmm. and whole and to operate, to begin to operate out of that identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Um, Amy Grant posted a beautiful meditation on Facebook and I'm not like, you know, here to plug Facebook or whatever, but it's just a beautiful, this is, I, I, I I don't want to butcher it, but, but it was, it was the difference between, you know, this is who we are and this is how we live. And, there, there is that tension between the chatter in our head and having to come back and know that we are loved and that we are whole. And she had a beautiful way of bridging that. I'm not going to try to reenact it because she just, it was beautiful. But if you do follow Amy, um, take a look. She's a beautiful person, beautiful soul, but, but the difference, and she was so vulnerable with the chatter in her head and coming back to who she is and that we are loved and it's a very centering practice um and born out of the solitude that you know we've talked about that we're all experiencing and i think that what tj was articulating today is so uh in keeping with that same space of um reminding us who we really are Mm -hmm. yeah 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 uh, yeah, and to, uh, to uh, it's difficult in recovery. You know, on the one hand, we have to admit the reality of our behaviors and take mm-hmm. responsibility for our actions. At the same time, we need to shut down that self-hating voice 
that uh, just hectors and condemns and discourages us at every turn. Mm-hmm. And to learn to actually accept affection and yeah. affirmation yeah. and to give it to one another. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you're a beautiful soul, David. Uh, I'm going to give you a little affection and affirmation. Yeah, well, this is the closest thing to a hug as we're going to get from that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. but, but likewise, Nate, I wouldn't be here without you. So, All right. I love you, man. Love uh, you look forward to our next conversation. I'm not sure whether I'm going to be in the chair for our recording of the next podcast. Kind of depends. I got a little little surgery coming up uh, that I'm anxious about. I, yeah. I'm, it's, it's, you know, it's not major surgery, uh, but I'm just, I've never been cut upon before. Uh, Frankly, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. Well, we will, we will miss you if you're not, but if you are, we will rejoice. Okay. <laughs> no pressure or expectation and we'll be sure and let all the listeners know um how you were doing if you aren't able to make it okay all right well stay with us or no don't stay with us well uh, come back and see us come back and uh next time until next week by the way i'm nate i'm david and we are your pals on the positive sobriety podcast the positive sobriety podcast is recorded at crossroads for the nations in brentwood tennessee Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 